Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Welcome to another episode of Between the Stacks. I'm Jennifer Baxter, the Athens Limestone County Public Library Director, and I'm here with Pulitzer Prize winning author John Archibald. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. So we started this podcast as kind of a method of hopefully reaching our patrons that may or may not be able to make it into the library every time we have a program. And you were kind enough to come and speak to our audience last night. So we're going to maybe do a little recap of that. But I'm going to mostly let you talk since you're the star of the show. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm glad to talk. Wind me up and stuff comes out of my mouth, I'm afraid. But uh, it's great to be here and and talk to library readers because they're the best. I agree with that. I might be slightly biased, but... For good reason. Yeah. Um, And it's funny that you say that just because last night we had about 20 or so people in the room. And I like how you made it a little bit more of a conversation than anything, because those people are seemingly the type of people that have something interesting to say. Right. And, And frankly, that's the whole point of this book to me is to have conversations about, you know, some tough things, something and some things that we don't always feel that comfortable talking about. And that can be. You know, here in the South, there are a lot of things we don't always like to talk about, whether that's, you know, race, whether that's uh, LGBTQ issues, whether that's mental illness, whether Mm -hmm. that's just, you know, the dirty laundry that we don't want to hang outside for everybody to see. And I believe that, you know, when we we don't talk about things, we give them a sort of power over us and that is hard to overcome. And when we talk about them, you know, it can become easier. Yeah. I think I've said this before, but one of my favorite things that I like to think about, and we, we broached a lot of topics last night. We ended up, a woman told us she was agnostic. We, you know, your book is about your father being a minister, right? Right. And a Methodist, right? Right. Right. Okay. And, uh, one of my favorite things that I recall from my childhood, I grew up in the Mormon church is just the, the idea of, Naming something removes the power of it over mm-hmm. you. So I always think about that. And it, it lends to the idea of what you just said, which is talking about things, naming them, identifying them, categorizing them as a librarian right. so that they're accessible and you can conquer it. Right. Yeah. When they're big, amorphous, unnameable, untalkaboutable things, yeah. then it's impossible to overcome. Right. And, you know, it's true with people, too. You know, when we, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, thinking of people who are different from us in some ways, whether that's, you know, because we go to different churches or because we look different or speak different or, you know, love different or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, when, we, when they're us and thems, they're easy to hate, you yeah. know. But when, when you get to know them and you get to experience them and kind of, see that they're a lot more alike to you than they are different then that you know does the same thing in removing that that sort of power mm-hmm. that difference can make yeah you said that last night too the us and thems and at the time when you said that I was like preach it because uh, <laughs> one thing I've noticed too is there's this idea of racism or them or you know LGBTQ them 
Except what I've seen in my life is that when it's your neighbor and you love them and you're like, well, not them, you know, not those, not the people I love, just those other people. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know that if you don't really experience it. And a lot of this book about is about race, but you know, the lot, a lot of the second half of it is to step back. Like you said, my dad was a Methodist preacher and his dad was a Methodist preacher and his dad was a Methodist preacher. And they go all the way back to the 1700s and on both sides of the family. It's crazy. It's uh it's a it's a long line, and um, and so we were all brought up in that. And but the first half is about how my dad dealt with racism through the civil rights era, and the second half is how my dad dealt with my oldest brother coming out in 1972, which was a different world than it is today. And as a preacher, how he dealt with that too, and so um, and he dealt with it with love. I mean, you know, he loved his kids, and so for me growing up, I mean, that was that's sort of what I knew is that. When people talked about gay people, you know, they talked about, I mean, I, I just knew my brother. That's all I knew. Who was the guy there who, you know, held me when I had to go to the hospital for busting my head open and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so when you know people and you love people, then those things don't matter as much. Yeah. It was still really hard for me to talk about around, you know, like my football team or anything like that. I didn't talk about it because yeah. we always find reasons not to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. Absolutely. Which, uh, which again, is part of the reason for the book. Wonderful. Well, you're a man of controversy, I guess. I mean, not that you want to be, but I Googled you yeah. and I was reading some of your articles and you do, you tackle a lot of really difficult subjects and I applaud you for that because it's not, especially, you know, in the South, I grew up in South Mississippi and I just moved to Athens about a year and a half ago. And I don't know if it's, I, I would attribute it to small town. Um, where there's rules and there's things you say and you don't say and you bring up and you don't bring up. And even though I grew up in a small town, I don't feel like it was that way necessarily. I don't know if it's different in the Gulf Coast because you had such an influx of different people with shipyards and the military bases. You have all kinds of people coming in over the years. It's so much stronger here. The You say that, you don't say that. And so I've even been like, wait, what? Am I, did I say something wrong? I don't know. <laughs> so um, it's just nice to see and refreshing to see that right here in Alabama, there's someone who's brave enough to broach the subjects. Well... First of all, they, I mean, I'm a columnist by trade and uh, have done it for a long time. And I firmly believe that there's no point in writing a, you know, a column, an opinion piece, unless it has a real opinion to it, you know, because you don't want to just say things to reinforce other people's, you know, beliefs. You want to be informative. You want to base it on reporting, but you want to say something that, you know, makes people think. Or makes people feel, whether that's, you know, sometimes I make them feel mad yeah. and they let me know real quickly. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you make them cry or you make them laugh. But, uh, you know, I think that my job is done if I've made them feel something. <laughs> and if I make them think on top of that, then, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to convince people of what they should think. But I would like for them to think and see that there are other views out there and at least you know, if, I would consider that a win. Yeah. Last night in the program, someone asked you a question and you, you were really good about putting it back to the audience about basically what do we do? How do we impact? And I didn't say it out loud, but it's really exactly what you're already doing, which is you wrote this book. Now you're going around and you're talking about this book. And these people are coming to this program to talk about the subject. 
that's got to be one of the best methods of actually solving a problem. Well, the point of the book, again, was conversation and was, you know, silence, the issue of silence. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, people say, well, what do I do? I mean, you you talk about it, you know, you don't keep it secret. You express to people what you believe. And I'm not going to agree with everything you might say. But when you when you tell people what you believe and why, and again, not that you should believe like I do, but I mean, in, in, on issues of race, is, is it really takes up a lot of them. You know, if if people throughout the years, if, if white people in positions of authority throughout the years had said, you know, I, people of quote goodwill were often very very silent in really tumultuous moments. And I always wonder, you know, what would have happened if, you know, preachers and, and politicians who sort of believed better uh, and in all walks of life, really, people around the dining room table had said those things um, that, you know, I don't think what we're doing is the right thing, then would it have made a difference? Yeah. I don't know. But in, if it happened enough, I think it would have made a difference. Yeah. And so whether it works or not always is less important to me than saying the things that I think need to be heard. Yeah. And, and just not in a confrontational way, uh, especially now. It's so difficult to have a, a conversation with people who, you know, who disagree because everybody wants to fight about it and everybody wants to say you're wrong and you're an idiot and I'm right and I'm not an idiot and you know we're probably all idiots in some <laughs> way you know and the issue is not silence versus loudness mm-hmm. it's just you know say what's in your heart yeah. without you know being open right and and not accusatory as I said last night, you know, when people disagree with me, they disagree harshly, and often they do it uh, in language that you wouldn't want your mama to hear. But I can tell you from experience that I've never been convinced of anything, you know, by being called an idiot. Yeah. So, yeah. so we have to think about how we have these discussions. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's what I believe, not what you believe. Yeah. Um, as I've gotten older, I have, and I guess maybe people have gotten more aggressive over the years and and in very recent years yeah (laughs) yeah really and i've found this really cool method where i just don't get mad because there's no sense in it and i don't want to elevate my blood pressure so instead i try to use humor or witticisms i don't know if that's a word but it is is, (laughs) and eventually it diffuses it to the point where they're like oh Okay, well, you know, there's no sense in arguing, really, because she's just going to be funny. And I think you said last night, you've developed friendships from people that sent you hate mail, which I found interesting. And and let's face it, I've been doing this so long that the current sort of dynamic of, you know, hate among people of different ideologies didn't exist so much, you know, 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. And, Mm -hmm. And so I have the benefit in a lot of ways of people who've read me there for a long time and and what you're saying about, you know, humor, I always felt like when you're writing something and you're saying something, you know, that's going to bring somebody down or that's going to be harsh or, or that, that, that if you infuse some humor in there, that it will, it makes people much more forgiving yeah. of what you believe or what you are stating. And I mean, I really think that helps. I mean, I think you're really onto something there. Um, but people who, you know, sent me angry, angry note. I, I was going to say emails, but this was, I mean, snail mail, you know, about one of my columns. And, 
And we ended up having a dialogue about it. And we ended up talking. And I can think of three cases in particular where they became very good friends of mine. And wow. uh, ended up speaking at two of their funerals. And uh-huh. because at the end of the day, you know, we're we're people and we're not expected to think the same thing about everything. And we both found middle ground in yeah. those things. And we both learned something from those relationships. And, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. I do love people that are passionate. A lot of times they are, you know, maybe sometimes a lot, but it's, at least they have passion about something. Right, believe yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. I agree. So you you say you've done this for a really long time. Um, what made you want to become a journalist? <laughs> um, well, journalism was my sixth different major in college, and uh, I... Uh, didn't find the right one until I walked into the Crimson White, the student newspaper at the University of Alabama, and fell pretty madly in love both with the uh, woman who would become my wife and still is, <laughs> and the business, which just got in my veins because you could write things and people would respond and people would react, and in some cases, change would occur because of it, and it just was a perfect fit for me, and it stayed that way. That's lucky. Both with my wife and my business. Yeah, that's awesome. You found your your thing and your person at the same time. That's right. (laughs) So over the years, how did you come to decide to write this particular book? Well, uh, as I mentioned, I had this long history of Methodist preachers in the family that came to an abrupt halt with me. But it's certainly in the DNA, and uh, it's sort of a longish sort of story, but uh, I was born in April of 1963, which is the precise moment in time, in, just outside Birmingham, Alabama, which is the exact moment in time that Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested and put in the Birmingham jail, where he wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail, which is probably the most important document of the civil rights era, one of the most beautiful. I know it's a remarkable piece of work because he's in jail writing on scraps of newspapers mm-hmm. this eloquent answer to a group of ministers who had told him not to protest here. It wasn't the right time. It was not the right time. And he wrote this letter back that says, you know, this is why it's time and outlined sort of a need for protest. But also he just excoriated the white church for its failure to speak up on issues of race and civil rights at that really important time in in the cradle of the civil rights movement in this moment in time when you know bombs were going off all over the place and and again in the context of this issue of of silence you know that we talked about before and and how the world might have changed if people with pulpits as i like to say and i don't mean that just in a religious way mm-hmm. um, because i think we all have pulpits but if people with pulpits had used them particularly those people of again quote goodwill mm-hmm because Dr. King used that phrase, um, had used that goodwill, had given voice to it. Um, and so I wondered all my life, you know, what my dad had said from the pulpit, from his, his pulpit in that moment in time. And I assumed, you know, because we were you know, the good ones, as we always like to believe, that, that he was not the white preacher that Dr. King was talking about. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was also a preacher in Birmingham at that time. So it was five or six years after he died when I found in my own basement the file cabinet that held every one of my dad's sermons for a 50-year career. Wow. And uh, 
hadn't always listened to them when he was giving them, but I sat down and read them and began a quest to find out what he was saying at that time. And that's essentially the skeleton of the book, the, the sermons my dad gave, and the sort of conspiracy of silence that it revealed mm-hmm. um, because there was intense pressure on a lot of people not to talk about these things in the churches and beyond. And so it became essentially a book about about that silence and that conspiracy of silence. Wow. And it makes it sound pretty heavy when I talk about that, but it's sort of divided up between that search for what was being said and the person that we knew. And so it's kind of alternating between history and memoir by chapter because I felt it's, it's really important for you to know why it means so much to us. I want readers to be able to to understand the person in the 360-degree view of him and why he meant so much to us and why, if he had trouble, if a person like him who believed in equality and taught me in equality and if a person who I believe was so courageous and principled and decent had difficulty using his own usually very powerful voice to talk about these very important issues, what does that tell us today about how we might use ours a little bit better? Yeah. Hmm. That's pretty beautiful, though, because as a overthinking analyzer, I always go for the why. And when you can really understand the reasoning behind actions it does help soften it and also gives you a clearer thorough picture of really what happened and why yeah Mm -hmm. and it's hard because Mm -hmm. number one you know in 2022 we can look back at 1958 or 1963 and say wow they're filling in golf holes on the golf courses with cement so that they don't have to integrate the courses or they're you know filling in swimming pools with cement so they don't have to integrate the pools and we're like wow that's crazy um and you know i would never be like that but it's it's difficult we don't we don't know Mm -hmm. with any degree of certainty what we would do if we were living in you know in 1963 or 1863 or 1763 or any of that but we can look at those times and look at those decisions and the choices, particularly of people we know and admire and respect, and say, you know, A, they weren't perfect. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and B, what can we do to make sure we don't fall into that same trap? And so I think we, we look back, I look back not to condemn, but to help figure out how to act on every given day. Yeah. And I think I talked about it last night. One of the things that's really become sort of obvious to me or apparent to me after re- after writing this is as you know as I was going through trying to figure out some of the things I did was I would look at his sermons at very important times in history whether that was the children's crusade in Birmingham or the 16th Street Church bombing or the Selma Montgomery March or whatever all of them <laughs> everything that happened between 1965 and 2005 mm-hmm. and um 55 and and you know, you can look at them, and that can be pretty stark when you look at that. I mean, the, the example I used last night was the one on Children's Sunday. Uh, he preached a sermon on Children's Sunday and the Methodist calendar, which coincided precisely with the Children's Crusade, in which thousands of children in Birmingham were arrested for protesting and taken to jail, which is a huge international news. And, and there wasn't a single mention of that. And it was stark to me because... It seems so um, unusual. But what has become apparent to me is that 
the lesson that I take from it is that, you know, we never know where we are in time. And every day might be, might turn out to be a momentous day and a momentous place. And we never know what that is. So all of our actions and inactions are important because we don't know what day it is. And I find that kind of strangely exhilarating and yeah. because it means that we just have to do our best. We have to be able to live with ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. And if we behave in a way that we could live with ourselves, that's a pretty good motivation. And um, we're not going to succeed every day. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, too, you know. Because yeah. you get to go to sleep and wake up and try again. You try again. <laughs> and maybe you do better next time. And hopefully someday we look back and say, I, I did my best. And, I mean, I can't. I don't, I don't want to say that's good enough because it's probably not always good enough, but it's pretty much about all we can ask. Well, if you turn around and look back over 25, 30 years and you did good enough, I think at the end you're going to say, well, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think trying is the most important thing. Yeah. And if I look back over everything I wrote over the last, I've been doing this job 36 years. That's how old I am. That's a long yeah. time. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there are things that I wouldn't be proud of if I look back to see it. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you know, you, number one, you grow and you learn and you get better and you get more confident and... And sometimes you you get worse, and sometimes you don't feel good, or you have bad days, or you, you go through a bad streak. But ultimately, I think, you know, just trying to do good, which is also a difficult thing because mm-hmm. we see good in different ways. Yeah. We have different opinions about what is right. So just make sure that the one you do is the one you can live with. Right. The, we, we did talk about that last night, kind of saying, I think this is right, but my neighbor has a totally, completely different viewpoint. And one thing I've, I've started to say out loud, it took me a few years to formulate it in my head, but uh, because we all come from completely different backgrounds, cultures, religions, experiences, um, I've developed a personal value system, but that's just coming out of my experiences and my history, but that's flexible. And then I, I kind of have developed a value system that's acceptable for society. So they don't exactly match necessarily because I don't think and expect other people to hold my same exact values. But, you know, there's definitely a connection because I think there are some basic things we can all agree upon, which is don't harm, don't murder, don't do evil, whatever that, you know, again, the, the determination of what evil is is varying degrees. But there's some basic stuff mm-hmm. that we can agree upon. But and I think it's okay to say, look, I have a personal value system that I don't hold you accountable to. And that's, that's okay and that's fair. But, you know, I think that we maybe haven't thought so much about that because going back to what you've said multiple times is people are so angry, you know, and they, it's almost as if there is this expectation of this other person to be you. And that's just impossible. It's never right. going to work. And, and, and what's the most sort of discourage well i almost said what's the most discouraging there's quite a few things that are discouraging but but the thing that bothers me the most sometimes is in this environment and again for me it's there's a lot of it's social media and a lot of it's response to pieces and what's really discouraging to me is if you disappoint someone who agrees with you on 90 percent of the issues 
they get so mad. It's like almost as if, you know, you're a traitor because you disagreed with them on some issue. And it's that's crazy. Yeah. And, it, and it's so self-defeating because people are so hardline that they make enemies out of allies. Yeah. And I think that happens on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, we can certainly see it pretty easily mm-hmm. um, in politics, but, you know, we, we see it in terms of all these other issues that we wrote in the book, whether it's racial sexuality or... But at the basis of these things, you know, what you just talked about is holding your opinions strong and allowing other people to hold their opinions yeah. Um, and to be themselves, I mean, I think that's that's critical to just yeah. understanding that you have the right to be you right. and I have the right to be me. And we can sit across the table and talk about mm-hmm. it and it doesn't matter at all right. if you agree with everything I say or if I agree with you. I mean, you know, we can still... Be friends. Be friends. I think that's the most beautiful thing about it, though, is like we we can't possibly have all of these other experiences that exist. And so every single person's perspective is really valuable because they bring something to the table that we've, we've never had the opportunity to experience. Right. And, and, and I couldn't have done my job all this time without that, without learning from people's experiences mm-hmm. who have opened my mind up to things that my mind would never have been open up to, whether that's, you know, big things or little things or just, you know, religious things or, uh, you know, food, (laughs) music, the whole thing. The world is just so much richer for me when I'm around people who are able to show me something that I haven't ever known. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it it makes my life richer. And I think, I think it does to most other people who are open to that. Yeah. So what's the most controversial thing you've ever written? Oh my God. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's, there's a lot, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've touched every hot button issue there is. And so it's hard for me to decide. It used to be that people judged individual pieces by individual pieces. And now they want to assign sort of a political spectrum to it. And they believe that if they're, you know, I mean, I could essentially write that the sky is blue and half of the people would tell me, that is the most beautiful blue I've ever seen in my life. And half the people would tell me, you're an idiot. That's It's raining outside. What are you smoking? Yeah. And so almost everything I write has sort of that, which is discouraging, mm-hmm. because you don't want to preach to the choir and you don't want to rant to those who disagree with you. And, and so I sort of miss those days when people, I mean, sometimes it, it's not that way, but you also know that it is in a lot that way, which is sort of comforting because you learn that when people tell you how great you are or how bad you are, <laughs> that they're both wrong. Yeah. And you search for those people in the middle who can say, I agree with this point, I don't agree with that point, and that sort of thing. But I mean, I've written about it all, race, death penalty, you know, all the things that get people going. And uh, I couldn't really pick what the most controversial was. Well, it sounds like an exciting time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always exciting. It's, it's harder than it used to be. I bet. Just because of people's reactions. Yeah. I went to Ole Miss, and I graduated with a journalism degree with an emphasis in print. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually was pregnant with my son in my last semester of college. And I remember I was in the hospital. I was about to have the baby. And the news was on. And it's like 
kind of the beginning. My son's 15. So it's kind of like the beginning of this really torrential 24 hour news cycle. And it had slid into really my opinion, my opinion, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting in that bed thinking, I hate this. Like, I was so mad because I just spent all those years learning that, you know, fair and balanced, unbiased, the the lens or whatever, all that stuff that you spent all those years getting drilled into your head and then watching this massive news network not paying any attention to any of the rules. Right. And I was like, I absolutely don't want to do this. Yeah. It's just, I, I can't imagine yeah. well, <laughs> fighting I'm, that. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, and I was a straight news reporter for at least half of my career and, and very much so. And I, I felt very strongly that, you know, opinion does not belong in news. And then I became a colonist, which is a different animal <laughs> yeah. altogether. And it took some time to figure out how to get opinion, how to, how to use opinion. Yeah. But the difference now, I think, is that, A, my column should be clearly labeled as opinion. Mm-hmm. And straight news should be clearly devoid of that. Yeah. And... Uh, Far too many things that we look at and, and see, particularly, I mean, it's, it's true in print, and it's certainly true in cable news and associated things. I mean, it's, it, it often mixes in ways that confuse people, yeah. that um, manipulate people, mm-hmm. and in ways that doesn't represent what journalism should be about. And that, that worries me a lot, too. It's also actually made me lately a lot more reluctant to to write in the sort of hot takes, you know, in the new environment in the news. And, you know, when when business models require, you know, a lot of people to get a a lot of clicks and Mm -hmm. viral news and that sort of thing, it's poison Mm -hmm. to the notion of what news is. It's poison to the trust of news, and it's poison to readers who deserve local news coverage and who deserve to know what's really going on. Yeah, and I, I think, too, I always, I love the idea of truth, is journalism a quest for truth? And somehow that morphed into, as a librarian, understanding how to access the truth, you know. And I love information and learning and accessibility to learning and openness to resources and sharing that with people. And I think that's where the idea of recording your truth or a version of the truth or your memoir or your history or whatever into a book form. And we keep that on the shelf for years to come where people can access this and learn about all these varied experiences just literally excites me to no end. It excites me too. I mean, and it was a dream come true to be able to write a book that hopefully somebody will read someday down the line and be able to put themselves in this place yeah. in this moment anyway and uh, who knows learn uh, something yeah I mean, there's a lot of history in there but I don't it's not like a history book and yeah. the, you know and the, the notion that you can write those histories in ways that people resistant to reading histories might might read you know to make them sort of fun and again to inject all those different feelings humor and sadness and emotion and and all those things is what I hope I hope we've accomplished here. But it was always a dream. It's awesome. Well, I'm proud for you. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, just that I'm so glad to be here. And, the, you know, I love the Tennessee Valley. I grew up here and after we, we left Birmingham, came to Decatur. And, as I said, family in Athens. And just feel sort of like home. So it's good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings, check out our website at alcpl.org. 
Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.